You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Good morning. It's great to see you all here today. And uh, just as the kids go out, if you want to find uh, the book of Judges, okay, the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and we're going to be around chapter 7. Now, we've actually come to the last message in this series, the refocus series that we've been in since the beginning of January. And the intention has been an opportunity for us to kind of reposition ourselves with God, uh, to take stock, to refocus our hearts and our intentions and our ideas on him. Now, we started by talking about fighting the good fight of the faith, and and actually that wasn't about, you know, bashing other people or anything like that. It's not a flesh and blood thing. It kind of is, though, because it's about our own flesh, our, our sinful nature, our own desires, that bringing them into line and taking hold of this Uh, eternal life to which we've been called, contending for our faith. Uh, And that's about being active rather than passive in our faith. I'm not talking about church, I'm talking about individually, uh, actively pursuing God. Uh, And then we talked about being co-laborers with God first and foremost, that we are his co-laborers, we are his field, we are his building is uh, the way that the scriptures put it. Uh, And actually we come alongside him in the labor that we do Uh, But also, there's a mandate for us to co-labor with each other. And then as we realize that the church and the kingdom will grow because we are invitational. And we looked at the story of the the woman at the well and, and how she had an incredible encounter with Jesus. And that led her to be an incredible inviter. And she laid out this great invitation, come and see the one who told me everything I ever knew about myself and, and that we're fully known nothing hidden and yet fully loved. And then that should lead us to have open hearts and open homes. Not that we force ourselves to do that, not that we try and tick a box, not that we try and religiously do something so that we fit in, but an experience with Jesus radically transforms the inner person and the outworking of that is that our hearts are flung wide open and that therefore our homes are flung wide open and that that's achievable by grace alone, not by works So this is all about preparation for this next season in our lives and in the life of Riverview Church. It's really important. Uh, And the task ahead, it's huge. I don't want to, like, give you any false pretenses today. The task ahead is huge. It's kind of daunting. There are 17,000 people in this town. In fact, it's probably gone up since last it was estimated. (coughs) 17,000 people to be reached with the gospel in this town. Uh, And we're small in number. I mean, 17,000 people, however many we've got here and however many aren't here today, however many are in churches across the town this morning, it's about 2%, if that, of the population of Boness are Christians. It's a daunting task. And, and the, the enemy is encamped everywhere. <laughs> Strongholds all over the show. And many people think that the Bible-believing church has had its day. Many people think that the church is now insignificant, irrelevant, lost its purpose, and its sense of passion, it doesn't really fit in society anymore. And some even think that the church is actually dangerous to modern society, that it's something that should be shut down, shut up, and silenced. And so this church does find itself with a task that seems too great. And the church in the world is in decline, it seems. It it might seem like 
the church across the world is losing the battle with numbers dwindling, with people turning away, with people within the church arguing within their own ranks. And it just seems like defeat, doesn't it? Sometimes, if we're honest, I don't want to hit you with a downer this morning. <laughs> I kind of see that on the surface, it looks like the church is small, weak, and broken. That's what it looks like on the surface. Uh, and you personally may not feel like you're up to the task. You may personally feel small, weak, and broken. Uh, and you might be sitting there this morning thinking, I, I want to see the church prevail. I want to see the church succeed. I want to see victory but I don't feel that I have enough in me in order to be able to do that. I feel insignificant. What can I do? It's too big. It's too risky. I'm too small. I'm too weak. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid to speak out because society's voice is loud and it sounds angry. I want to tell you this morning that God is more than able to work victory through our weaknesses. Now, how many of you have heard this phrase before? Yeah? Heard that phrase before? So, this summer, I'll have been married to Jess for 14 years. And she's a lucky woman. (laughs) She is a lucky woman. (laughs) Honestly, Jess is the most blessed woman alive. Forget Mary. (laughs) Jess is blessed and highly favoured. You know. (laughs) Why are you shaking your head? Come on, we can't have a domestic in front of the whole church. That would be terrible. Do you know how many people have actually told me, particularly when I met Jess at the beginning, that I was punching above my weight? (laughs) I'm okay with that. The fact is that this church, this fellowship, Riverview Church, Boness Apostolic Church as it was, it has traditionally and historically been punching above its weight for years. It might look small, it might look insignificant, but it is not. And it has had impact that has gone out from these doors into the town, but further beyond. There are pastors in far-flung places. There are missionaries in far-flung places because of what has happened here. And, And on top of that, there are kids in a camp in Uganda that are benefiting because of your generosity. So we're punching above our weight. There's about 12 or 13 kids that are sponsored by this church. There might be more opportunity this year to sponsor more kids. Every one of those children is learning of Jesus, is having an opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. And because of that, we're punching above our weight. And that's just one little area that we're doing that. And we're going to carry on punching above our weight in this church. Small but mighty. Why? Because every part of the body, that's the church, every limb, every digit, every organ, every sinew, that's you and I, are able to punch above our weight and pull more than the expected load, stretch for things that are beyond belief and ask for things that are unimaginable because we believe in one who can do more than we could possibly ask or imagine. Consider that this morning. You are able to pull more than your expected load. You're able to punch above your weight. You're able to ask the king of kings for things that are almost ridiculous. Why? Because he deals in the ridiculous, because he can do much more than you can even imagine. So what are you asking? It's not enough. What are you imagining that you could ask? It's still not enough, because he can do more. So ask with confidence, ask with boldness, because he can do more than we could possibly ask or imagine. Individually and as a church, doesn't matter how big or clever or powerful or good-looking or skillful or important or experienced we are, we can have full confidence and full assurance because the one who is in us is greater 
than the one who's in the world. The one who's in the world has a big gob, but it's a noise. The one who is in us has a roar, and there's power in that roar. God can take somebody who's smaller, weaker, more fearful, less academic, less likely, less confident, less able, and he can do more. He can do more. He can do more with you. He can do more. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So let's go to Judges 7 together, and we're going to start at verse 8. So Judges 7, verse 8. The camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he, he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. It's interesting that God speaks and he's still afraid, and God has to say, if you're still afraid, even though I'm speaking to you, go and have a listen. Go and have a listen to what the, what's happening down there. And the, Mid, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. That's a pretty vast army. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A clouty dumpling came tumbling down the Midian camp. (laughs) A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling down the Midian camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. I think if your clouty dumpling's that heavy, you've probably done something wrong there. (laughs) His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of their camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets, question, where's the sword? They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, while each man held his position around the camp. No motion forward, just holding position. All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. No sword, no advance. Only 300 people split into three companies of 100. And yet this thick as locusts, camels that you couldn't even count in the valley, the camp turns into turmoil. How how does that happen? How, How do we get to that point? Remember, God can take the smaller, the weaker, what seems outnumbered, outgunned, less likely, less equipped, and he can do more. God can do more. God can do more. His power is made perfect through our weaknesses. So let's have a a brief look at the weaknesses in this story, because they're important. So firstly, the nation 
The weakness of this nation was idolatry. It was sin. That was their weakness, because this is the nation of God. He is their ruler. He is their king. And yet they keep getting themselves into this cycle. They're stuck. It's like wash, rinse, repeat. And so what they're doing, their cycle is apathy or backsliding, and then that turns into sin, which in this case is idolatry, which leads to judgment or consequences. And then from that, under the weight of that, they cry out to God in repentance, and hearing that repentance cry, it leads to rescue and then rest. But when you get to the place of rest, it's not long before they're going, oh, this is all right. And the idols start working their way back into the land. And the apathy starts working its way. You know where sin begins in our minds? It's not with an action, it's with an attitude first. And and in fact, anything, anything, anything in our lives that we place more trust in or more attention to than God, that's an idol. Anything. It doesn't matter how good it is. And we talk about, for guys, the traditional three are money, sex, and power. They're the three things that can corrupt a guy. But actually, those are just the obvious things. Because family can become an idol. Friendships can become an idol. Salary can become an idol. Food can become an idol. TV can become an idol. Your car can become an idol. Literally anything. This church can become an idol. The way we do things in this church can become an idol. If we're trusting in the process rather than trusting in the king of kings. Uh, And where these idols gain strength is when the going is smooth. When we kind of get a bit bored. Because I guarantee most of us will turn to God on our faces when things get hard. Where are you, God? Come and help me. And actually when circumstances are rough around us, it, it draws us into God. We seek him. It's when things are good that we tend to forget and how quickly we do that. So apathy turns to idolatry, which turns to consequence, which then obviously turns to repentance. And and some of you might be in this room today really struggling, battling with some sin. Uh, And you know that cycle because you get to the sin bit and then straight after you're devastated. You feel the weight of conviction and And you kind of hide from God. And then eventually you're so broken by it, you get on your face again. And God restores you and he forgives you because he's loving and he's already done that on the cross. One of the most dangerous places for us is when things all seem well. And chapter 6 actually begins with the the line, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What is evil in the eyes of the Lord? It's to turn your eyes away from him. First and foremost, that's it. Everything else comes out of that. But turning our eyes and our attention and our focus away from him, first and foremost... That is to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this phrase, even in these few chapters of Judges, has appeared four times already in that cycle. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so the nation will come and plunder them and and pillage them and put them under oppression, and then they they are under the consequence of their actions, and, and they cry out. And then God rescues them. He raises a judge who comes in and like, delivers them and kills all the baddies. Uh, and, and then they, they're celebrating because God's restored them. And then the cycle starts again. Judges 2, 16 to 19 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen 
to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods. They worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. You know, as a side note, I think the fact that God still perseveres and comes through and raises up fresh judges is a real mark of his grace, and it shows his intention in Jesus to bring the one who would finally deliver us from evil. In the beginning of the book of Judges, things start well, but halfway through the first chapter, just that quick, we see that they're failing to obey the instruction. They, they leave some of the armies in place that God said, push them out of the land. Now, let's forget about the metrics of that in a modern society for a minute. God said, these people are going to be a problem for you. Get rid of them, effectively. And they didn't. They left some of them in the land, and guess what? Those inhabitants that they left in the land were the very ones whose idols they would start to worship, but also the very ones who would come and attack them. If you do not let God deal with something in your life, that thing will crush you. It's not God crushing you. It's not the church crushing you. It's not the pastor crushing you. That thing will crush you if you cannot yield it to God. Sin undealt with in our lives. Yes, you are forgiven. The cross has done it. And if you were in Christ, you are a brand new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. But you know as well as I that we still wrestle with this sinful nature. The, the, the fact that, like, who will save me from this wretched man that I am? But the answer is Jesus has done it. But if I don't give those things to him and let him deal with them, if I don't give him access those things will crush the life out of me. And so these Midianites and these Amalekites, they join forces and they attack and overpower Israel. And their, their devastation is so full that they don't leave a tree standing. They don't leave a crop in the field. When it talks about them being like locusts, we're not just talking about number. We're talking about destructive power as well. They ravaged the nation. And so all the people, all the Israelites, ran for the hills. They made caves where they lived because they were too afraid to come out and they had nothing left to eat. And so we come on because the behavior that we see in Gideon, what's true for the nation is true for the person. You see the same values reflected nation to man. Now, I've lost count of the amount of times Somebody, when they're praying for me or seeking to encourage me, has quoted Judges 6.12, which is, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I think it's because I'm short. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, yeah, he's short. Let's encourage him. Like, you know, so you can, we'll, we'll make him feel like he's one of the big guys. <laughs> you know, the Lord's with you, mighty warrior. You might be short, but you're going to be powerful. Bless you. It's kind of almost like a patronizing kind of thing. And I've heard it so many times. Or maybe they just think I'm timid. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's not really likely. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I want to say, jog on. <laughs> you know, why, why are you saying that? Is, is it because you don't think I could handle myself in a scrap? <laughs> you know, let me show you. <laughs> when we first meet Gideon, he's treading grain. Th that doesn't seem unusual. 
He used to tread grain, but he's not treading it on a threshing floor. He's treading it in a wine press. Now, I'm not massively academic, <laughs> but I don't think that grain is the thing that you put into a wine press and then press. I think it's grapes <laughs> to make wine. And so here's Gideon. He's treading grain in a wine press. Why? Because he's hiding it. He's, he's trying to subvert the attention of the Amalekites and the Midianites. He's trying to, trying to hide. He's being a bit cloak and dagger with it because he wants to keep his grain. He wants his food. He needs his crops. And so he's doing it in a wine press because he can hide the grain, but also because he can hide himself. So here's a man who God says, mighty man of valor. And what's he doing? Treading grain in a wine press. He's reclusive, he's reluctant, he's timid, he's uncertain, he lacks understanding, he's fearful of what people think of him uh, and what they will do to him, uh, even his own people. He's, he's slow to understand the situation and he even shifts the blame. He doesn't really understand the consequence of sin, he doesn't understand the position that his nation are in. So when God turns up to him in that chapter and says, rise up you mighty man of valour and tells him, you know, I'm going to deliver this nation through your hands, he questions God, where, where were you God? What, what are you playing at God? That's what he's saying, have you ever said that when things have got tough? What are you playing at God? Why? Why? This shouldn't be happening to me, what, where are you God? In fact, he says, pardon me, he's still quite polite, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, do not, uh, sorry, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Is it not so true that we often will question God's goodness and purpose for us when we know fine well we or another sinful person perhaps caused the problems in the first place. The amount of times I've brought consequence on my own head, and the weight of those consequences is huge, and I've cried out, God, where are you? Why won't you help me? And I know fine well that I made it happen. He's slow to understand God's methods. He, he quickly doubts himself, his own courage, his own strength, his own potential. Mighty warrior? Yeah, right. That's not me, God. Go find someone else. Pardon me, he says again, my Lord. How could I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Maybe you feel like that today. You're the weakest in the church and the, the least in your family. Rise up, you mighty warrior. And God tells him, go in the strength that he has. In other words, he already has all that is required to do all that God has asked him to do, because God is enough. God spells it out, I will go with you. And, and God spells that out to you today, I will go with you. You already have enough because God is enough. You might not have it in your heart. You might not have it in your character. You might not have it in your confidence. You might not have it in your experience. But if Christ is in you, then the power that is in you is the same power that raised him from the grave. So do you not have everything that you need? Because you have that same power in you that raised Jesus from the grave. So we can, we can chuck timidity out of the door when it comes to spiritual matters because we have the same power. And we can chuck out of the door the, the, the self-doubt. And, and the thing about, like, I'm not good enough. I'm not, there are people that are better than me, cleverer than me, more musical than me, whatever it is. Chuck that out of the door because you already have everything, everything that you need. And here's the thing, and this gets me, he was still afraid of man. 
He was obedient to God's instructions, and the first instruction was go tear down these idols. Uh, and he does it. He obeys. He's obedient to God's word, but he does it at night. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> That's what I do. Yep, I'm going to go in blazing. Yeah, but I'm going to do it when nobody's around, <laughs> when the room's clear, and I'll just quietly go, let's take the idol down <laughs> very gently. He's not comfortable going public with the gospel. And he needed constant reassurance and certainty and affirmation. And if you know something of the, the, the story of Gideon, even after this first thing where God protects him and, and he goes and destroys the idols and his confidence must be growing, and then God's sending him out to this battle that we just read about earlier. Uh, and he's so uncertain that still that he's hearing God or that God wants him to do that, that, that he lays a fleece on the ground and says, God, if... If in the morning the fleece is soaking wet but the ground is dry, then I'll, then I'll know that this is you. And so he puts this fleece on the ground and sure enough, in the morning, he can wring that fleece out and he gets a whole bowl full of water out of the fleece but the ground is dry. But that's not enough for him. I mean, that's pretty miraculous. But then the next thing is he goes, pardon me, my Lord. <laughs> Very polite guy. He says, can I just try that again? But this time, just to make sure it's you, let's flip it around. So this time, let the ground be soaking wet, but the fleece remain dry. And of course, God does it again. Twice, he has to go back to God. That's not a mandate for us to test God with what we think he's saying. It's his lack of confidence. It's his lack of willingness just to take God at his word. What has God said that we know categorically is true for every believer? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. There's no exit cards. There's no, that's not you. But we do struggle with this, and I struggle with this because I'm timid, and when God pushes me in a direction, I'm the guy with the fleece wanting to say, just one more confirmation, please, God. One more. We always need more encouragement, confidence, boosting, more affirmation, more reassurance. That's Gideon, and he's just like us. (laughs) He's just like me. I mean, maybe you're not like that. Maybe it is just me. He certainly doesn't appear to be a mighty warrior, but listen to this, God does not look at the outer appearance. God looks at the heart. In in fact, what he sees when he looks at your heart, because Jesus also said that the the heart is corrupt above all things. (laughs) So when God sees the heart, he's not seeing our heart before we knew Christ, he's seeing Jesus. When, When God looks at the heart, and he's not considering the outer appearance, he's looking at the heart, he's seeing his son. He's seeing the power of his son there. He's seeing the confidence of his son there. He's seeing the authority of his son there. His power is made perfect through our weaknesses. Now, have a quick look at the army. We see this truth even more clearly, that God works power through weakness. Because here we have this army. Now, if Gideon had mustered an army sized to match the enemy, like locusts, like crazy number, well, surely that's kind of Goliath versus Goliath. There's no contest there, really. It's it's an even contest. God doesn't deal in even contests. So don't expect that we will be as strong-looking and as popular or whatever as society and the arguments in society. We will always look like we're on the back foot, like we're at the disadvantage. But see what God can do through that. Because Gideon starts with only 30,000 men against an army like locusts. 30,000 men isn't enough. It's, it's nowhere near enough. He's going to need God already. But God wants them to really know with certainty, with clarity, that this is God. The battle belongs to the Lord. So he says, he says to him, reduce the number. And you're going to reduce it this way. Anyone who trembles with fear, send them home. Not like with a flea in their ear. Just send them home. Anyone who trembles with fear, tell them to go home. Enjoy their family. Don't worry about this. We've got this. 
And you know, two-thirds of the army leave. 20,000 people in an instant, gone. So now he's left there, Gideon's left there with 10,000 men. That's definitely not enough to beat this army as big as locusts. But God's not done there. God says, actually, your army's still too big because the glory has to go to God. Now, I know that there are situations where you could have an army and you send the SAS in and they do what whole platoons and you know, divisions couldn't do. You, you strike with a pointed spear. You, you know, there are ways that you can do this, like the 300 at Thermopylae who held off all of the Persian army. It's that kind of thing. You can do an incredible amount with very few people. But God says, no, no, no. Still too many. They'll still be able to go in and say, look how good we are. So what he does, he says, reduce it further. And this one's weird. He says, take them down to the stream. And all of them who get down on hands and knees and drink like that, send them home. And everyone who drinks like this, lapping it out of their hands like a dog, then keep those guys. You know how many are left out of that 10,000? 300. Suddenly, 300 against an army the size of locusts. The stage is set for God to show the magnitude of what he can do in their lives. He's going to be coming through the ranks, fighting for his people, and God wants you to know this one. The battle belongs to him. Small, insignificant, timid, afraid, brimming with failure in some cases, fragile and anxious in other cases. God can still do immeasurably more through us than we can even ask or imagine. So be encouraged about that. Some some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we put our trust in the name of the Lord. Not in how eloquent we are, not in how bold we are, not in how strong we are, not in how together we look, not in how cool our church appears to be. All of those things are irrelevant. And actually, I want to put it to you that we need to be weak, that we need to be smaller, because that's when God's power is made perfect. We punch above our weight because the weight behind our punch is God. So the strength of his punch defeated death broke the curse of sin, shattered the prison bars that held us captive. That's the strength of his punch. Crushed the serpent under his heel. That's the strength of his punch. And the last thing I want to draw your attention to is this, as I kind of wrap up. I want to draw your attention in the passage that we read to the empty jars with the torches inside in the hands of the 300 men. That's in 7.16. The, The jars prevented the enemy from seeing the light of the torches In other words, it let them covertly move into place. Because God's not going to let stuff be revealed until it's time to be revealed. It allows them to move into position and then shattering those 300 jars all at the same time. Imagine the noise that would have created, but also it would have instantly lit up the sky. Imagine around your camp, 300 torches. Now, bear in mind that not every soldier would have normally carried a torch, yet all of these 300 are carrying a torch. So I think the Midianites are thinking, wow, if there's 300 torches, how many are behind that? And then the trumpets blowing. If there's 300, because not everyone blew a trumpet, but if there's 300 trumpets blowing all at once, how many people are behind those trumpets? What is going on here? So the enemy's not prepared, they're startled, they're confused, because they believe there's a much greater force. But the fire and torch combo that Gideon uses is reminiscent of the smoking fire pot and the burning torch that appeared between the pieces of meat as God was making his covenant with Abraham in the first place. So these torches and these clay pots are a reminder of God's promises that still stand, of his faithfulness that he has promised to his people 
But also this, 2 Corinthians 4. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So maybe we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed because he crushed the power out of the enemy's encampment. Uh, and, And maybe we're perplexed, but we're not in despair because he is the hope that holds our heads up. And maybe we're persecuted, but we are not abandoned. Maybe we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the jar of clay, the death of Jesus. It looks fragile. It looks like defeat. It looks like breakage. It looks like that broken alabaster jar that was poured out, which anointed Jesus for burial. That looks like it's the end. That looks like it's defeat. That looks like hopelessness. And yet, out of that, the fragrance of life, when this jar is shattered, the light of the life of Jesus is revealed in us. The fragrance of his resurrection power is observed in us, known because of our fragility and our weakness. His grace is sufficient. That's what I want to tell you this morning as I close. And Ian, if you want to head up. His power is made perfect in weakness, and so we can boast all the more gladly We can delight in our weaknesses. We can delight in insult. We can delight in hardships and persecutions and difficulties because when I am weak, then I am strong because his power is made perfect. If you have a jar with light inside it, those clay jars aren't like kilner jars made out of glass. They're made out of solid clay. Uh, And if you've got a light inside it, it can't be seen. So the light of Christ in you is seen through the chips and the cracks and the broken parts of that pot. That's how they're seen. They are seen, the light of Christ is seen in the smashing of the pot. So as we are weak, as we are hurt, as we are broken, as we are flawed, the light of Christ is seen in us. And I want to reassure you, Joel 2.25 says this, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. So let your jar be fragile. Because you're not going to lose one bit of treasure out of it that God isn't going to restore to you fully. Let your heart be vulnerable because there's no heartbreak that he isn't going to heal. Let your tears flow because there isn't one tear that he isn't going to wipe away from our eyes. Let the insults come because there isn't one insult that can be levied on us that hasn't been levied upon him and he will place on our heads a crown of life. So Lord, we come to you today knowing...